Okay, so we started a new series last week, and it's called Help My Unbelief. And, uh, and we talked about this idea of what it means to live in the tension. Because so, at times so many Christians don't understand that being a Christ follower is about living in some tension. And I think uh, whether it's directly or indirectly, we are taught sometimes in the church that you can't have any tension. You can't live in any tension when it comes to your faith. Um, and I think at times we do a disservice to people like yourselves where we, we kind of make it seem like you've got to have it all together and you can't wrestle with things, you can't have doubts, you can't have questions. And, uh, and so at least not when you're in the context of community. And that's the farthest thing from my mind. I don't want to ever communicate that. If you feel that from me um, or our group, then that's on us for, for communicating that to you. But we've got to make sure we're very clear that the church should be a place, the first place, where you can have questions and doubts and concerns, and we can talk about it. Um, if we can't do it here, then I don't know where we can do it. And so we have to be able to do it here. And uh, so we're doing a six-week series called Help My Unbelief. It's based on a story over in, in the book of Mark where a man prayed this prayer to Jesus. He said to Jesus, he says, I believe, but help my unbelief. And so that's going to frame the, the entire series that we're going to go through. And, uh, and so today we're calling today's uh, passage, or today's talk, Saving Faith. Now, when I was a junior in high school, I had this faith crisis. Now, it wasn't that I was doubting the Christian faith, but I wrestled with this question. How do I know my faith is real? How can I be confident that I truly have a saving faith, a saving belief? Uh, because the Bible speaks of people who think they're saved but aren't. And so I wrestled with, well, how do I know that that's not me? Like maybe I'm just tricking myself or fooling myself into thinking my faith is real, but maybe it's really not. And so I wrestled with this, and it all came to this moment in my, my junior year of high school where I was questioning that, that I had that question um, just sat on me for the, the better part of three or four days. Didn't sleep, didn't eat, just couldn't shake that question. And, uh, and so our question for today is what is belief? What does true saving faith look like? So we did a series last summer called How Do I Know I'm Saved? You guys can go back and listen to that if you want to. It's a four-part series talking about how sometimes genuine Christians struggle with whether their faith is real. And I do think God wants us to have assurance if you struggle with assurance of salvation. But the person I'm more concerned about is the one who thinks they're saved but really isn't saved because the Bible talks about that person too. So I believe that God, I believe that God wants that person to, to wrestle with this question. Like, how do I know I'm really a believer? And here's why I think that, because there's a section over in James, chapter two, verse 19. There's a section in James where he's talking about faith and works, and he's not saying that you're saved by works. He is saying, but he is saying, if someone is truly saved, it's going to be shown in how they live their life. And James talks about that. He describes the difference between, like, head knowledge and, and true saving faith, heart knowledge. So James chapter 2, verse 19, where it says this. It says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Hey, guys, could I not have talking while, like, on the front row because it's very distracting for me. Uh, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Now, we talked last week about how in the ancient world, they believed in many gods. 
um, Jews and Christians believed in one God, and because of that, Jews and Christians were called atheists because they only believed in one God. They didn't believe in the many gods of the Romans and the many gods of the Greeks. And so they, the culture called the Christians, they said, well, you might as well be an atheist because you don't believe in any of our gods, so you're like an atheist, which is a strange thing to call a Christian. But that's what they called Christians back then. So James is saying here, you believe in one God, like God in three persons. So that's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Well, great. Well, even the demons believe that. The, demon, the demons have that knowledge about God, and they're not saved. They're not redeemed. So James is highlighting here, there is a way to believe something, but to believe it just like the demons believe it. And we would never say the demons are redeemed or that they're saved, right? They have this knowledge of who God is. You see in the, in the Gospels, routinely, where Jesus would show up and a demon would be speaking through a person, and the demon would have full knowledge of who Jesus is and be the, the only non-confused being in that whole scene. Like, they would be like, that's the Son of God, and they would start making someone convulse, and that demon had clear knowledge of who Jesus was. But the demon wasn't, wasn't saved. So what does it mean to believe like a demon believes? Well, that's what James is referring to here. He says that even the demons believe that God is one. They believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy. They, they believe in the facts. They know this to be true. So James is talking about this mental agreement or head knowledge. You know, someone can say they believe in some facts about Jesus, but that's not the same thing as salvation. So mental agreement is important because someone does need to mentally agree that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he's the Messiah, that he's part of the Trinity. They need to believe that he died on a cross to pay the price for our sins, that he resurrected on the third day. Like someone has to believe in those facts and believe they're true in order to be a Christian. But it's also possible for someone to just believe they're just facts and not truly place their faith and trust in those facts. That's also possible. And that's the kind of thing that James is talking about here. So how is believing like a demon different than the belief of a Christ follower? Well, here's the difference. It's the word transformation. If someone truly believes, it's going to change them. It's going to transform them. And so I'm going to give you three different aspects of faith. So what is faith? Well, faith is obedience flowing from a transformed heart. Faith is obedience flowing from a transformed heart. Now, some people, there are some that obey, but it's not coming from a transformed heart. I think of the older son in the Luke 15, the prodigal son story. You guys know the story as the prodigal son story. It should really be called the story about the two sons, because there's an older son and a younger son, and they're both really, really important to the story. The older son, he's following all the rules. When you read the story, he's, following, he's the rule follower. The younger son's the one that's the rule breaker. He goes off and spends all the money and comes back in repentance with his father. But the older son is angry at the father and the younger son. And that's kind of like the Pharisee type person. So the older son is, is really obedient, but that obedience isn't flowing from this transformed heart. And his heart gets exposed later on in the story as he's so angry 
at his father for showing the younger son grace. So it's not coming from a transformed heart, this obedience, and the same can happen for us. We're, we're obeying. Maybe your personality is like you're a rule follower type person, and you would be that whether you're an atheist or a so-called Christian. Like that's just your personality. Well, that might be you. That can be us sometimes that we just, we're, we're, we're obeying, but it's not coming from this transformed heart that God has done some real work on the inside of us. Now, when I talk about salvation with people, there's a passage I use, Romans 10, verses 9 through 10. And if you want to use a key passage, like you're sharing Christ with someone and you just want to go to a passage quickly and say, if someone says, like, what does it mean to be a Christian? It is like my go-to passage. Say, let me explain what it means real quickly. And it's Romans 10, 9 and 10. And you can give some context if you want, because it does start in the middle of a sentence, Romans uh, 10, verse 9. But Give me some context if you want to. Go back a few verses before that. But Paul writes, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now, I don't want you to think of this like it's some like, two-step formula, like, okay, first, uh, believe in the heart check. All right. Secondly, uh, confess with the mouth, check. That means I'm a Christian. I want you to see how these two things tie together because it talks about this confession with the mouth, yes, but also talks about this belief in the heart. And Paul says that someone must have a true belief in the heart. That's a heart faith, a saving faith, a trust that Jesus Christ really did die on a cross and pay the price for my sins, and he really did rise again on the third day. And so, you, yeah, you need to believe in those facts, but it needs to be like this belief in the heart that goes beyond just head knowledge like the demons might have. So believing in the heart, what does that mean? Well, it's to believe in such a way that your life has changed. It's to believe in such a way that you're transformed. And when someone believes in this way, then I think it's going to lead to a confession with the mouth. So don't think of this as like two-step process, like I do this and I did that, there I'm good. Think of it like this. If there's a true belief in the heart that is a transforming kind of faith, then that is going to come out of your mouth in a confession. Now that might be um, you might call that the initial salvation prayer. Like, we don't really see the salvation prayer, like, in Scripture, literally. But you can kind of make a case for it here in this passage that, yeah, if you truly believe that Jesus Christ is God, that he is what's needed to save you, then you can confess that to him through prayer. And pray that to him. Call it the salvation prayer if you would like to. But it shouldn't, the confession shouldn't just end like the day you get saved. The confession continues throughout your life. That means you're confessing it to other people. You're sharing Christ with other people. You continually confess it throughout your life. Now, the initial might be you prayed and asked Christ to come into your life. You surrender your life to Christ. But it should be this continual thing that happens throughout your life, this confession with the mouth. I think of the, the analogy of getting married. So, like, when I took my vows with my wife on June 15th, 
2003, is that right? 2003, June 15th. We stood in front of people, and I already knew that I loved her. Like, that was in the heart, right? That's the heart transformation. That already happened. But the wedding was like this confession with the mouth in front of all these people that I was going to love her for the rest of my life. Now, does, the, does that confession just stop on the wedding day? No, it continues throughout our marriage. If I said to Courtney, well, I, I told you I love you like that one day back in 2003, that should be enough. I would never say that. In the same way, the confession that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior should continue and continue and continue throughout your entire life. Not just that you're confessing it to him, but also confessing it to others. And so there is the initial, but there's also the continual. So if someone truly believes in the heart, it's going to lead to what Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 says, where Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So there's so much we can unpack with Romans. This is a whole sermon. This could be a whole series, Romans 12, 1 and 2. But we're going to focus on the word transform. Because saving faith leads to transformation. Now, it doesn't mean perfection, but it means that whenever we fall into sin or mess up, part of the transformation is that we have this posture of repentance toward God, and and that's all part of the transformation. You, You start to see your sin differently than how maybe you saw it before. You start to see your sin as a violation of not just a rule, but a relationship. And this is how you begin to view things. So Barnabas Piper, he writes this, what we know about God is not the same thing as believing in him and having that transforming faith. In fact, it can even be, listen to this, it can even be a deterrent because mental assent, meaning just to mentally agree that that Jesus Christ is God, that so easily substitutes for real-life change. I know that's a wordy quote, so just listen to, to this. What he's saying is just your mental agreement in the historical facts of the Christian faith, that's not saving faith. That's not what's going to transform someone. Now, it might lead to maybe some behavioral changes, some external things initially, but it's not going to be lasting change. That, that's never going to stand up against the, the storms that are, that are going to come into your life. It's never going to last if that's just all it is, just mental agreement. So sometimes our head knowledge can fool us into thinking that we've been transformed. Really, it's just, it's just head knowledge we're hanging on to. So here's some ways we can tell the difference. So when, when we sin, do we have true sorrow over our sin? Do we do what's right when nobody's looking and there's nothing in it for us to gain? Do do you truly find joy in obedience or do you just see it as a burden and just a, a have to? So some questions to think about as it relates to how do you know 
the difference between being truly transformed and just having a head knowledge about these things. So sometimes we can acknowledge something with our lips, but then deny it in how we live. We might say we believe, but then just treat Jesus like nothing more than a, than a good luck charm. So I shared this maybe, I think, a few weeks ago in the main service. I'll share it here with you. Um, in 2005, sociologists Christian Smith and Melinda Denton wrote a book called Soul Searching, the Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. In that book, they coined this complex phrase called moralistic therapeutic deism. I'll explain what this means. Don't worry. I know it's Sunday and not a day for those kinds of things, but um, they coined this phrase, and here's the big idea of what they're communicating. Because there are some people that say they're Christians, but when you ask them what they believe about God, it resembles nothing of the God of the Bible. So here's their phrase, and here's what, how they unpack what and this is after talking with many teenagers over the course of years of research and trying to put in, like, words, like what they're hearing from teenagers that claim to be Christians but maybe are not based on how they view God. Because the God they're describing is nothing like the God that we see in the Scriptures. And here's how they summarize this viewpoint. So moralistic is just like, it's just kind of behavior-based. I, I just try to be a good person and I try to behave well. That's moralistic. There's therapeutic, which means the purpose of the Christian faith is just to help me feel good about myself or feel good about things, right? And then deism is like, I believe in some vague notion of God out there, but I'm not really sure we can really know that God in a personal way. And so here's how they define it. It says, a creator God exists who ordered the world and watches over human life. That's the deist idea. God wants people to be good, nice, fair, as taught by most world religions. You know, they're all kind of teaching the same thing, is their viewpoint. The central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. God does not need to be involved in one's life, except when there's a problem, of course. Then lastly, good people go to heaven when they die. So very behavior-based, works-based. And this is the attitude of many, and many would label those ideas as like, yeah, that's Christianity. That's not Christianity. That's something totally different. One teen who was part of the study said this, and this is a quote, morals play a large part in religion. Morals are good if they're healthy for society, like Christianity, which is all I know. The values you get from the Ten Commandments, I think every religion is important in its own respect. You know, if you're a Muslim, then Islam is the way for you. If you're Jewish, then that's great too. If you're Christian, well, good for you. It's just whatever makes you feel good about you. Recently, I, I met with someone who has expressed some interest in working with us in our high school ministry, and she was describing to me that she was working with youth at a previous church. I'm not sure where that was. And, uh, and she said after a while, she began to ask students, like, okay, why, why do you come here? Like, what makes you want to come here on Wednesday and Sunday? And for the most part, she said, most just said, well, I think it's just, it's fun. It's, it's good for me. It's right for me kind of saying the same thing you just heard in that quote. And listen, those are not the words of somebody that has a transformed heart. Those aren't the words of someone who, like, truly sees Jesus as authority and king. And I, I, I want to obey him because of 
that's what I believe, that's who I believe he is. Those aren't the words of somebody that has a, a truly transformed heart. So that was my long first point. What is faith? Faith is obedience flowing from a transformed heart. The second point is faith seeks understanding. And this will be a very quick point. Faith seeks understanding. Sometimes once people are saved, they just coast along, never seeking to understand their faith in a deeper way. So part of seeking to understand is being willing to ask questions, tough questions, wrestle with those questions. And, and you know, some of the questions that you have, there are answers to. I'm always amazed whenever people think of questions and they're like, you know, I just have all these questions and, and I empathize with that. And then sometimes the questions I go, you do know that like the whole world has wrestled with that question. And there have been books written about that question, like whole books of that one question. Like, please read them. Like, if you're going to be a doubter, don't be lazy about it. Like, go read some stuff and, like, seek understanding and, and seek to understand and, and have the conversation. So faith seeks understanding. And so part of that is seeking to understand questions that you might have. But part of that is seeking to understand how faith fits into every aspect of your life. Like, it influences everything. Like, when somebody says, like, yeah, I'm a Christian, but, like, I'm dating this unbeliever, and I see no problem with that. It's like, how can you not see that this is a conflict? And the list can go on and on and on, right? But faith seeks to understand, like, how my faith impacts every element, or should impact every element of my life. So faith seeks understanding. And then thirdly, faith is relational trust. Saving faith is always relational. It's never not relational. I know I use a double negative, I shouldn't do that, but it's never not relational. It is a confidence in his trustworthiness. It's a rejoicing in his presence. It is, it is being led and being guided by the Holy Spirit. It is desiring to be with him. It is, it is a prayer life that wants to express to him and be real with him, be honest with him. It is, it is spending time in his word, seeking to get to know him and his character. You don't just seek to know about him, but you seek to know him in a relational way. There is a difference between knowing about someone versus truly knowing them. I'll give you an example. So on the screen, there's a picture of me at dinner in Dallas, and that's Troy Aikman right behind me. I could have touched him with my left hand, his shoulder. Um, we go into this dinner, this steakhouse, and my wife and I sit down, and my wife just looks at me, she goes, Dave, Troy Aikman is sitting right behind you. And I'm like, no, he's not. Whatever. And uh, I look around, I'm like, he is literally like here, okay? And I'm a Washington fan, so, you know, but still, it's like, it's a famous person. I'm going to do the famous thing. And so I was like, well, here, um, I've got to prove to my cowboy friends that I was here and this actually happened. So 
take a photo of me, you know, and, uh, and you can get him in the photo, right? So um, she snaps a couple of photos, and that's not very good quality, but um, it is what it is. So, so we're there. Now, if I go to my friends after that encounter, and I say, yeah, you know, I, I know Troy Aikman. They're like, no, you don't. You don't know Troy Aikman. Now, I can tell you some facts about Troy Aikman. I can tell you a lot of facts about him and his career and, and on and on. But I, I'd be foolish to say after this encounter that I know Troy Aikman because I don't know Troy Aikman. I know a lot about him, but I don't know him. I can't pass off my knowledge of him with saying that I actually know him in a, in a real personal way. So in the same way, this is also true in how some relate to God. They, they might know some things about God, some facts about God, but they don't truly know him in a relational way. So saving faith involves this relational knowledge, relational trust, and that is required for us to truly know God. So Alistair McGrath says it like this, faith is not belief, faith is not belief without proof, but trust, and that's relational trust without reservations. Trust in a God who has shown himself worthy of that trust. So now when you hear of these three aspects of faith, it is easy to become discouraged and think, well, I don't know if I have that. Well, again, living in the tension. There's going to be some tension that you're going to feel as you think about these things. So you show your faith. We said last week, you show your faith by being able to pray, I believe, help my unbelief. And so knowing you struggle with these things, I think, is a display of your faith. It shows your faith. So a helpful picture might be the four seasons. We have two seasons in Texas, of course, but some places have four. So summer, fall, winter, spring. And when you think of the seasons throughout the year, sometimes the sun shines bright every day and everything is crystal clear and focused, but sometimes it's not like that. Sometimes the sun is, is just only out for a little bit of time or it's just barely peeking through some clouds. And that might be a picture of some of you with your faith that there is some true faith there. You're truly saved, but it's just things are cloudy right now. Like it's not as obvious, at least not to maybe your eyes or someone else's eyes. So I'm not trying to say to you that like if you have like any little inkling of doubt, well, then you should question everything. What I'm trying to communicate is that you do live in this tension sometimes of understanding that there are some there is some darkness sometimes. There is some, there are some clouds. That doesn't mean you don't have faith or you're not, you're not saved. Again, I like what McGrath says once again. This is kind of a longer quote. He says, your faith is real, can be real, but just may not be mature. It may be a little shallow or superficial, but faith can grow and it strengthens as it grows. It needs to take root and grow into a, strong, into a strong, vibrant plant. The problem lies not in the gospel, but in the nature and depth of your response to it. You may have allowed the gospel to capture your imagination. Like you just thought, like it just kind of wows you when someone preached a sermon about the gospel. You find yourself caught up in the moment, but you really haven't thought deeply about it and understood. And so maybe it has bypassed your mind. Your faith may be shallow when it should be and can be profound. So sometimes it's just about like, I just need to grow and mature in my faith. 
It's not that I'm not saved. I just need to grow and mature my faith. And so if we can summarize today's message, it is this. True faith is a transforming faith. True faith is a changing faith from within. So I want you to hear a story of someone, someone's life being transformed in a powerful way. This is a guy named Afshin Ziafat, and he is an um, Iranian nationality, but he was, I think, born in the U.S., and has a Muslim background. So let's watch this video for a moment. My name is Afshin Ziafat. I was born here in Houston, Texas. When I was two years old, my family moved back to Iran where my parents are from. In the late 70s, an Islamic revolution hit that country and we moved back to Houston when I was in the middle of first grade. I didn't speak English, I spoke Farsi, the language of Iran. And God in his incredible plan provided for me a Christian lady, a tutor, who would teach me the English language every day after school by reading me books. In the second grade, she came up to me and said, Afshin, I've been reading you all these books, but now I'm going to hand you the most important book you'll ever read in your life. And she handed me a small New Testament Bible. She gave me that Bible during the Iran hostage crisis when many people turned against my family because we were from Iran. But I'm so thankful that this one lady decided to look beyond the divisions of race and culture and class and pour herself into my life. I grew up in a Muslim family being taught the five pillars of faith of Islam and that Jesus Christ is just a prophet. My senior year in high school, I became curious with the person of Christ, and I found that Bible sitting at the bottom of my closet waiting for me after 10 years. I began reading that Bible and came face to face with the love of Christ, and eventually I would give my life to following Him. Unfortunately, I did not understand the cost of following Christ. You see, my father is a very prominent Muslim and has always been the most important person in my life. And because of that, I hid my faith from him for about a year and a half until he finally found out, sat me down, and made me choose between him and Christ. Everything in me wanted to choose Islam and choose my father. My flesh wanted to choose my father and not lose my dad. But God gave me the strength to look at my dad and say, Dad, if I have to choose between my earthly father and my heavenly father, then I choose my Heavenly Father. I choose Jesus. And so my father disowned me. It was that night in my room when I opened up the Bible. My, my father had told me to, to get out of his face, and I opened up the Bible and read in Matthew where Jesus says, Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him. Where Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword, for I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And that's when I first understood what it means to be a Christ follower. Through the years, I've regained my relationship with my dad and then only to see it go bad again when I decided to follow God into full-time ministry. But my God has been faithful every step of the way. My story is not about a testimony about a man's faithfulness to God, but rather God's faithfulness to a man. Today, my relationship with my father is restored, but even greater than that, now God has given me a nationwide and even a worldwide speaking ministry where I travel around, share the gospel, share my story, and see even Muslims give their faith to Christ through my story, through my message. And the only reason that is possible is because God had a plan for my life. Remember, he says, if you want to hold your life, you lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, we'll find it. And I challenge you to lose your life. Lay your life down. Jesus says, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And I found that when I've lost my life, that the life that Jesus has given me today, I would not trade for anything 
that I could have had following the path that my father had for me. I pray that you would follow Christ and count the cost. So how do we know that someone's life's been transformed when they're willing to count the cost and they realize how expensive it is to follow Jesus and they're willing to pay that price, whatever it might be, um, and follow him. So I'm going to pray for you and uh, um, I'm going to call an audible. Um, it's a little bit late, so we're going to not go to groups, but if you want to gather up and just little, just check in with your students, if you do that in this room. Um, I want to make sure we protect the time that they have for, I know moms are like, we're going to lunch, so we're going to protect that. So um, I don't want to mess with that. Uh, let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for um, how your word can just open us up and convict us of um, where we fall short. God, I pray that um, after today's message that, that there's no one in here that's truly saved that is now just wrestling with the assurance. I pray that's not the case. I pray they have full confidence knowing that they, they belong to you. But I do pray for um, those in here that may, may think they're saved but maybe aren't saved. I pray that they would wrestle with that. I pray that they would wrestle with that. And they would come to a true saving faith in you, knowing that if they, they believe something in their heart, it's going to change how they live. And none of us are perfect in this life. But God, I pray that you would show us what it means to have faith. Show, show us what it means to have true saving belief and trust in you. Let me pray this in your name. Amen.